great to see everyone here today to take part in our worship earlier today, uh, remembering that they are seven hours ahead of us. The church in Jatomir had a party. Uh, they also worshiped, but they, they had a party. This month marks their 30th anniversary as a church. It's in 1993, in October. That, yeah, praise the Lord for that. It's in October of 1993 that uh, two groups of us went over and uh, held some meetings there and preached there, and uh, that was the beginning of the church in Jatomir, and they've had a a great history now for the past 30 years. And they were celebrating today. Some of the folks from the church in Rivna came over and uh, from the church in Arpine came over to help them celebrate. And they just had a wonderful time together. And they constantly expressed their love for all of you and their appreciation for uh, the ways in which this church is a blessing to them. So uh, be thinking about them today. Give thanks to the Lord for them uh, and for all the, the good that he has done uh, with them and for them over the last 30 years. <clears throat> well, as you well know, October 7th was a horrible day for the people of Israel. But it wasn't just a horrible day for them. It's, it's been horrible days since then, and it's been horrible for the, the civilians in, uh, in Gaza. It's been horrible for that whole region as the conflict has spread uh, into uh, Jordan and into Lebanon and uh, perhaps will eventually spread into other parts of the world. We pray not, but there is that potential. Uh, American troops are now present on the scene, which is uh, deeply concerning, I know, to all of us. Uh, we don't know what the end of all of this will be. Uh, ever since 9-11, we've come to realize that what happens in the Middle East affects us. It affects everybody. And so when we hear about these things, we know that it isn't just about them. But conflict has been so much a part of the history of that part of the world that I don't know about you, but when I hear the words Middle East, I just expect the word conflict afterwards. Middle East conflict has been going on uh, for many, many uh, years. Now, as always, uh, this current conflict has brought a lot of talk about what does that mean spiritually? What does that mean as far as God and God's point of view and God's plans? Does it signal some kind of advancement in the plan of God for the world? Is this part of something that God has planned? Does that make it inevitable? Is this something that could not be prevented because God wanted it to happen? There also is the question of is this the beginning of the end of the world? And there are uh, is also the question of whether or not all of this is spoken of in the Bible and whether or not this has anything to do with the timing of the return of Jesus and on and on and on. Now, if you've looked on the Internet, you know that there are people all over the place saying all of those things. There are people saying this signals the end of the world, Jesus is going to come in the ne next couple of weeks, uh, all sorts of things like that. And this is part of a plan of God that is inevitable. Some people even welcome it. They say that it's a good thing, that God wants this to happen. It must happen in order to further his program that he has in mind for the world. And so uh, we have all of that kind of uh, thing being said. One speaker recently said the entire Bible is a book about Jerusalem. And the reason is because Jesus came to Jerusalem, and that's where he was crucified, and that's where he was raised from the dead, and, and that's where he will come again, the speaker said. Uh, in order to set up a, an earthly kingdom for a thousand years reigning in Jerusalem. 
And so he says the whole Bible is about Jerusalem. I found that a rather alarming statement, having read the Bible myself. Now, all of this suggests that we need to be concerned about what's happening in the Middle East, but it also suggests that we need to be careful that we're not swept up in a tidal wave of hysteria and of thinking things uh, that the Bible says things that it does not say. That's the reason for this series. We want to talk about what the Bible says and what it doesn't say about uh, the Middle East. We're looking for biblical perspectives on the Middle East. Two disclaimers as I begin this series and, and begin this morning. Number one, I'm not an expert on the Middle East. I've never been there. I don't understand a lot of what goes on there any better than you do. Uh, a lot of this is confusing. I have no firsthand knowledge of what's taking place in the Middle East. But I do believe that Scripture can help us think about it. Scripture can help inform the way we think about this and the way that we approach this. And so that's the purpose of what we're doing here the next four Sundays. Second, my purpose is not to decide who's right or who's wrong. A lot of the conflict over this in our country is, is about that, isn't it? It's about people taking sides about who's, who's right, who's wrong. I'm really not interested in that. I'm not interested in the politics of it. I'm not going to try to speak to that. Uh, I'm not uh, wanting to be swept up into that. Uh, but I want us to understand uh, that the uh, events of October 7 is only one scene in a long-running script in which both sides have done a lot of harm to one another. And the purpose of these messages is not to judge, it's not to sit in judgment on anybody, but to seek understanding and to ask what role we ought to have as followers of Jesus. What, what should our attitude be? What should, what should we be doing in response to all of these things that are going on in the Middle East? So as we begin talking about this and asking how all of this got started, my response is, well, it's a long story. In fact, I hope you brought lunch. <laughs> uh, and and the, good, the good side of this is you'll be early for services tonight. Uh, so that, that's a positive. It won't, it won't be that long, but it is a long story. And I'm going to try to tell it to you just as succinctly as I possibly can. Let's go back, first of all, 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, 2,000 years before Jesus, when God made a promise to Abraham, established his covenant with him, and he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, making of him a great nation meant that he had to start with one descendant, and at that time, Abraham didn't have one. He's called Abram at that point. Abram did not have a descendant. And by Genesis 15, he still didn't have one, and God kept making that promise. And he said, it looks like one of my servants in my household is going to have to be my heir. I'm going to have to leave everything to him because you have not given me an heir. You get to Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16, and God had promised Abram this heir, but he's still childless in Genesis 16, and he and Sarah, or Sarai as she was called at that point, are getting old. He's 85 and she's 75, and He's beginning to think, I'm not quite sure how this is going to pan out, you know, at, at our age. And yet God has made the promise. Well, Sarai came up with a plan. She had a solution to all this. She said, you take my maid, Hagar, my Egyptian maid, and you have a child by her. And that's how we can further the plan of God. Because obviously I'm not going to be able to bear this child, and, and, and she can 
And so he did that, uh, and sure enough, Hagar got pregnant, but she also got arrogant because she began to look down on her mistress because she could get pregnant, and Sarai couldn't. Uh, and, and so uh, there was uh, tension and strife between the two of them, and Sarai began to mistreat Hagar, and Hagar ran away as a result. She fled into the wilderness. Well, God caught up with her in the wilderness, and he made some tremendous promises to her about her unborn child. I want you to listen to Genesis 16, verses 10 to 12. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That's the same thing he said to Abraham. That's the same promise he made to him uh, that his descendants would not be uh, numbered for multitude. Now he says that to Hagar about the child that she's going to bear. Also, he says your son will be called Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears because God heard her cry in the wilderness. So name him Ishmael. And then he said this, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Well, then you go back to the story of Abraham, as he's now called, in Genesis 17, 15 to 21. It's 14 years later, between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. 14 years, which means Abraham is now 99 years old and Sarah is 89. And God came to him again and he said, this is not the plan. The plan is not for the line of promise to go through Hagar's son. But Sarah is going to bear you a son. And Abraham laughed. And I don't blame him, do you? 99 years old, she's 89 years old, and God said, You're gonna have, she's going to bear a child. And he laughed, and he said, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. You know, God, what are you thinking? What's it, what are you thinking about here? We've got this one son. Let's let him be the child of promise. And God said, No. It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Sarah's son, Isaac. He will be the child through whom God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. Still, he says in verses 20 and 21, good things are in store for Ishmael too. Here's what he says. I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. All right, so Ishmael is going to be blessed. He's going to be a great nation. He's going to father 12 princes, but the line of promise, the covenant promise is going to be established not through Ishmael, but through uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, the line that leads to the coming of the Messiah. Well, you look further down in Genesis 25, there's a list of the descendants of Ishmael just to show that God kept his word. And there is this statement in verse 18, he settled over against all his kinsmen. That seems to be a reference to ongoing conflict, but we'll come back to it a little bit later. Now, when you get past Genesis 25, the focus is almost entirely on Isaac and on his descendants and not on Ishmael. In fact, Ishmael is mentioned only six more times in the whole Old Testament, right? Only six more times is he mentioned in the Old Testament. And his descendants, the Ishmaelites, as they come to be called, are mentioned only nine times in the entire Old Testament. You remember, for example, that Joseph's brothers sold him to Ishmaelite traders, who are also called Midianite traders, because traders, that's where they lived, in Midian. 
So they were called Midianites, but also Ishmaelites. And then there's this rather disturbing text in Psalms 83, verses 4 through 6, where the Ishmaelites are listed among the enemies of Israel and even called enemies of God. So listen to this. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. And he goes on to list some other peoples that are all banding together against Israel and against God. Now, having looked at all that, I want us to notice some important things about Ishmael and his descendants. Uh, and think about this. First of all, the Old Testament does indicate, as we've seen in Psalms 83, that there were some situations of conflict between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites. There's no question about that. There were times that they were at odds and even at war with one another. But there are no overt predictions of an ongoing conflict between them. There are no obvious predictions that this is going to be forever. You get that statement in Psalms 83 that it was happening at the time the psalm was written. It does not say that they will be at one another's throats forever. So we need to make that distinction uh, and be sure that we don't assume something that isn't there. The Ishmaelites are not vilified frequently in the Old Testament as Israel's enemies. The descendants of Esau, the Edomites, are. They are the perpetual enemies of the Israelite people, but not the descendants of Ishmael. Now, the Ishmaelites intermarried with the Edomites, and so sometimes they joined with them in attacking Israel, but it was not necessarily an ongoing thing. Why? Why are they not vilified more in the Old Testament? Why are they not vilified really at all? And the answer, I think, is because Ishmael was a blessed son of Abraham, just like Isaac was. And he was blessed by God's promise, and God was not going to withdraw that promise, and so he is not vilified in the Old Testament as a constant enemy of God's people. Also, he was a great nation. That's what the Bible said he would be, and that's what he became. He was the father of 12 princes and so forth. So Ishmael had a special place in God's merciful plan, too. It wasn't the same place as that of Isaac, but still he had a special place in God's plan, nevertheless. Now I want you to fast forward with me to the year A.D. 135. A.D. 135. Why? Because in A.D. 135, it was the conclusion of what was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. That was the third time that the people of Judah, of Judea, had rebelled against the Roman occupation. The third time they'd rebelled against them, and the Romans were tired of it, and they crushed that rebellion cruelly, viciously. Thousands of the Jews were killed. Even more than that were enslaved. And the upshot of it was is that the Romans told all the Jews to get out of the land of Judea. They didn't all leave, but most of them did. They were forbidden to enter the city of Jerusalem, period. And all of the central area of Judea no longer had any Jewish residents in it at all, and there were only a few scattered in the outlying areas. They became scattered all over the place, and the Romans renamed Judea Palestine. They just wanted to change the whole scene. They renamed uh, Jerusalem Ilia Capitolina, 
to give it a, a, a Roman name instead of a Hebrew name and try to break that thought about the, all of their history with that city. And they had the Jews to uh, get out of it, and they could not enter the city again. And the bottom line of that was the Jews no longer had a land. They now were without a homeland, starting in the year 135. Fast forward with me again to the 7th century A.D. In 610 A.D., Muhammad claimed that he began receiving revelations from God. That continued till his death in AD 632. During that period, the Quran was written and the religion of Islam came into being and that led to clashes with Jews of the Middle East, but also with everybody else. You need to understand that. This was not just a, an Islamic Jewish thing. This was uh, the uh, Muslims against everybody. Uh, and so there were uh, other Arabic peoples in the, in the region, and they were clashing with them as well. Remember that not all Arabs are Muslims, and not all Muslims are Arabs. We shouldn't make that, that correlation in our mind because it's not, it's not correct. There are some Arabs that are not Muslims and many Muslims who are not Arabs. But a lot of the early spread of Islam was due to armed conflict with the peoples around them, not, not only with the Jews. The Quran has kind of a mixed message, both about Jews and Christians. On the one hand, the Quran says that Jews and Christians are to be respected because they are people of the book, is the way it's put. In other words, they have a written scripture that they follow, and Muhammad apparently respected that, and so he said, you know, at least they're better than the polytheistic peoples around them. They believe in one God like he did, and uh, they have a scripture, so they're the people of the book, and they are to be respected. On the other hand, some very harsh things said about Christians and Jews, but particularly about Jews. The Quran clearly says that everyone who rejects Islam will go to hell. It also says that the Jews were guilty of perverting the teachings of Moses and of distorting the history of the people of Israel and that they made up the part about Isaac being the child of promise. In reality, Islam says that it is Ishmael who is the child of promise, and the Jews just lied about that, uh, and so that's why there is uh, one major difference between the two of them. There are several texts in the Quran that refer to Jews as being transformed into apes and pigs, and some uh, Muslims say that's not to be taken literally. Others say, no, it is. And some of the ones who say it's not to be taken literally say it's about their behavior. Well, that makes them feel a lot better, I'm sure. Uh, you know, they behave like apes and pigs. So you have these, uh, this sort of respect on the one hand, but then you have this thing about apes and pigs on the other hand. And that is still taught in some Islamic circles, although not in all. But the establishment of Islam intensified the conflicts between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. It often has erupted into violence, and there's been a lot of hatred on both sides. Let's fast forward again. 1882. In 1882, beginning in 1882, a lot of Jews from Russia and Eastern Europe began immigrating back to Israel. All these centuries, they had not had a homeland, and they started going back to uh, the land of Judea, uh, at Palestine as it is now called. So between A.D. 135 and 1882, there were few Jews in Palestine. 
The rest were scattered over many parts of the world. So for 17 centuries, the land was populated almost entirely by Arabs. By the end of the 19th century, a movement known as Zionism had begun. You hear that word a lot. What does it mean? Zionism is the call for Jews all over the world to move back to Palestine and to reestablish the nation of Israel. Remember, at this point, there was not a nation of Israel, so they were calling for all these people to move back there, and they began to do that. This naturally did not sit very well with the Palestinians who had been living there for the past 1,600 or 1,700 years, and so there was conflict then over the land. Things only got worse in 1917 when the British government issued what was called the Balfour Declaration, saying that Palestine was now the homeland of the Jews. Then again, uh, in 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine into two parts. There was so much conflict between the Jews and the Palestinians living there, they said, let's just divide it up. And so they drew a line down the middle of it, said half of it is Jewish, half of it is Palestinian. Didn't satisfy anybody, and it only again intensified the conflicts until finally, on May 14, 1948, the Zionists declared Israel to be a nation and Palestine to be their homeland, and that the Palestinians had no part in that whatsoever. So 1948 is the date of the beginning of the modern nation of Palestine. They were attacked the next day after that declaration by Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. So more and more conflict. June 6, 1967 was the start of what was called the Six-Day War. Israel regained territories they had previously lost. They have basically been at war with their Palestinian neighbors ever since. The result of all this is intense hatred between the two groups. And from the Arabic side, intense hatred for Western nations, particularly the United States, for siding with the people of Israel. There are two primary focus, focal points of this conflict. One is, to whom has God given the land? You see, you've got two groups of people. You've got the uh, Jews on the one hand, and you've got the Palestinians on the other, both saying God gave this land to us. If you wonder why do they just keep fighting over it all the time, that's why, because they're both convinced God gave it to them, and they're not about to give it up. The other reason why the conflicts go on is because of retaliation for past offenses, of which now there are many centuries worth. Many, many centuries of conflict and offenses and retaliation for those. So much for the history lesson. Now, what perspective do we, should we, gain from all of this? First of all, I'd suggest to you that the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis is not something God decreed to happen. I think that's totally wrong-headed. The Bible never says that. And to say that would imply that the conflict is his will and that the conflict cannot be helped but it's something that God has planned, that he has predetermined. Even Genesis 16 and verse 12, which says that Ishmael shall dwell over against all his kinsmen, does not suggest an ongoing conflict between his descendants and the descendants of Isaac. 
Uh, it's about him. It doesn't say anything about his descendants. And I think it's wrongheaded to assume that because it says that about him, that the same would be true of all his descendants. At most, Genesis 16, 12 seems to be a prophecy about what would happen, not a decree about what must happen. happen. Such conflicts are a matter of choice. Folks, human conflict results from human sin. And we don't want to get away from that. Human conflict results from human sin. And so there is always a choice in the matter. It is not something that God wants to happen. That's just as true for us individually as it is for nations. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12? He's writing to the Romans, and he says, insofar as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. Beloved, he says, never avenge yourselves, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And leave vengeance, he said, to the wrath of God. So we have that option. We have that choice. We have that possibility. And that's the path that Scripture says we, as believers in Christ, ought to take. Other people may force us into conflict. Notice that Paul said, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. There may be situations where we have to practice self-defense, but that's the choice of those who force us into the conflict. It is not because it is God's will. So it's incorrect, I think, to look at the Middle East conflict and conclude that it's the outworking of a divine plan or to conclude that nothing can be done about it. That's not so any more than conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ or any other two groups of people. The second thing I think we should learn from this is that it shows what happens when people live by the law of an eye for an eye. When you practice that, if that is your guiding principle in life, then you're going to be at conflict with people forever. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, establishes that principle in the Mosaic Law. It said if someone takes the life of another person, then he'd pay with his own life. If he puts out someone's eye, then his eye would be put out. Uh, if uh, his ox gores the other person's ox and it dies, then he gets to take that person's ox, and on and on and on. It's put this way uh, in Exodus 21. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, some folks take that as a principle for human relationships, and that's not what it's about. It is a judicial principle designed to make the punishment <clears throat> fit the offense. It is a judicial principle of saying this far and no more. It is a judicial principle of saying that people must pay for the wrongs that they do, but it is not a principle of human relationships and is never offered as such. And it does not rule out mercy and forgiveness. That's the important thing. It does not rule out mercy and forgiveness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said not to live that way. He said, in fact, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who would abuse you. Because if you don't do that, then the problem is the vengeance never comes to an end. It never has a stopping place. You're just always paying somebody back for something that they've done to you. All it takes is one offense, one wrong act, one wrong move on somebody's part, could even be one mistake on somebody's part, and then you have a conflict that may go on for generations 
and even for centuries. That's exactly what has happened in the Middle East. Both sides are always saying they started it. Both sides are always saying they don't want peace, so there's no use talking about it. That's the reason why we as Christians are called to be different. We have to face some tough questions about justice. We have to face some tough questions about when to defend ourselves and when to defend others and how far to go with that. But we are called to be merciful, not vengeful. In fact, we are told not to be. Leave it to the wrath of God, Paul says. We're not to let the long, long story of vengeance and retaliation go on forever. We are to let it stop with us. If you think about it, isn't that what Jesus was doing on the cross? Wasn't he letting the long, old story of conflict and sin stop with him? Wasn't he absorbing in himself all of the sins and conflicts of the world and extending God's mercy rather than God's vengeance? You see, that's why Jesus is this poor world's only hope. Because in him is mercy and forgiveness and in him we learn to be merciful and we learn to forgive. And I'd be remiss if I didn't call your attention to 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says that when we're praying, he says to pray for all men, for all nations, for their leaders, for their rulers. Why? So that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives, godly and respectful in every way. This is good and it's acceptable in the sight of God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If you and I ought to be doing anything in these days, and at all days, but especially in these days, we ought to be praying. We ought to be praying that God will bring peace. You know, I think not only about those nations that are in conflict over there, but I think about the believers who are among them. How can they live their peaceful and quiet lives? with all that conflict going on. We're seeing that struggle work itself out in Ukraine. Uh, it's so hard now for the believers to carry on their, uh, their faith and live their lives. They can't do it in peace and quiet, but they're doing it. But it's just that much harder. We ought to be praying about that, be praying that God will bring about peace so that believers can lead quiet and peaceful lives and so that more people will come to know about Jesus because that's what Paul says is the end result. That's the goal. Because God desires all people to be saved. And that's much more likely to happen when there's peace than it is when there's conflict. We need to be praying as we live in a world filled with conflict. Let's do that right now. Let's bow and pray, please. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you that in spite of our weakness and our sinfulness, and sometimes our foolishness. We thank you that you love us and that you provided a way of salvation through your son Jesus, that your mercy is extended through him, and that through him and because of him we have the opportunity for life everlasting. We pray, Father, that you would help us to follow him in every way at all times, no matter what the circumstances. But, Father, we do want to pray for peace. We pray for peace in the Middle East. We pray for peace in Ukraine. We pray for peace everywhere where there is conflict among people. And we pray, Father, for the believers who are caught 
in the midst of those struggles, that they'll be able to lead their quiet and peaceable lives as you would have them to do, that they'll be able to continue to spread the word of, of, of Christ, that more people might come to you and find salvation. Help us, Father, to be diligent about this prayer. Help us to be peacemakers as we go about our lives every day, wherever we are, realizing that we too have a role in keeping peace and bringing that blessing to all. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you're not yet in Christ, don't yet know that mercy and that forgiveness, we want to encourage you today to come and confess him and be baptized in him, be united with him, and have the gift of peace and salvation with God that he wants you to have. Let's stand together.